Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast in partnership with Lexus. Subscribe now to catch new episodes dropping weekly to your favorite podcast app. Economies are interesting things. No, really. They are. Stop that. Stop, stop that right now. Okay, it's the way they're explained that's boring as watching paint dry. Let me give you a quick rundown. All economies have got a public sector. Some are good. Some are so-so. Some are completely useless. Ideally, a public sector provides the infrastructure upon which a society can function. The stuff that high-functioning environments take for granted. Electricity, water, roads, ports, decent healthcare, education, that sort of stuff. And businesses operate within that ecosystem. Every society will have its large corporations. There'll be significant multi-generational family businesses. All will have small and medium enterprises. Some will become the giants of the future. Most of them will fail. Today's story is about giving those little guys a fighting chance. Everyone loves an underdog story until you're the underdog. The underdog does not surrender. This is the first lesson the underdog learns, and it owes its life to it. Blink, and it's game over. That's a gritty online ad produced for Yoko, a 10-year-old startup whose goal is to give anyone with a small business digital access to the global payment system at an affordable price. Eight out of ten of its customers have previously not taken a digital payment. And because of the shift in the way that we as customers pay for products and services nowadays, away from cash and more to digital channels, this card-linked service is a game-changer. Their revenues, of course, skyrocket in the first few weeks of accepting card payments. If you don't believe me, go and draw a wad of cash yourself. Don't use your cards for a week spending cash makes you think twice about a purchase, perhaps appreciate the real price of something and the real value of money. Tapping a card or your phone defers the payment, defers the pain, and you don't feel it in the moment. I think Yoko has changed the life of an entrepreneur. Here we cater to businesses that don't even know they're going to succeed. So they come and they start off on a barrel, and the first thing they have to get is a snap scan and a Yoko. And Yoko enables them to do transactions very quickly with small commission amounts. And they are also able to get a Yoko with a point of sale on it so they can see what they're selling. And uh, we have 104 traders here, and I think 104 of them have all got Yoko. So it's an incredible tool for small businesses. That's Cheryl Ozinski. She runs Cape Town's Oranjezicht City Market. Yoko was developed with these people in mind, but is increasingly being found in small businesses everywhere. 350,000 devices have been sold so far, and it had big audacious goals to serve businesses across the length and the breadth of Africa and into the Middle East. For any small business, getting paid is priority Number one, it also helps that you can trace your cash flows and have an automated digital track record. That's pivotal, especially if you're doing hundreds of transactions a day. And if one day you want to raise some capital to expand your business, you have a whole track record there as well to back you up. 
building that business with a denuded talent pool, though, is hard enough. For Yoko, it's tough to raise capital in a market that doesn't value the potential of fintechs in the same way as a more established capital market might. So this is also a story about the restrictive impact of not being able to import those skills that you need to attract because of an ineffective and restrictive visa regime. But I'm getting ahead of myself, even though it is a crucial part of the story, which we'll tell you later. First, let's do a typical boy band story, because every boy band has a band leader. Perhaps it's the singer. And every band needs a drummer. What about a bass? And you need guitar skills. But we're not talking about that kind of boy band. More this kind of boy band. Yeah, this boy band is more nerdy boy band style, more keyboard of a letters and numbers variety than of a musical variety. This is how four smart guys got together with a single vision to bring greater equality to the harsh and brutal reality of a world of startups and small businesses. This is a story of how to keep a team together through thick and thin, a story of shared values, a story of strong purpose and understanding fraternity and flexibility and how that goes a long way to making a four-way partnership work. In 2004, when Westlife broke up, Britain's independent newspaper did a study and declared six years to be the average lifespan of a boy band. There's always the catalyst for our boy band. It's Katejo Mapai, chief executive of Yoko. Now, let's go back a bit again. It's the early 1990s. South Africa is failing. It's a country lurching from crisis to crisis. Two little boys meet at an aftercare playgroup in Cape Town because their high-powered parents are looking to carve career paths in a very difficult economy. Katejo was in a playgroup with Lungisa Matsoba. Katejo would leave the country for the U.S. with his parents in a move that would broaden his worldview, would open his eyes to opportunity and change his way of thinking. And over the years, Katejo would bring together Lungisa and two others that he'd worked with in previous jobs, Carl Wazen and Bradley Watrous. They formed a brand new business. Here's the story. Eventually, many years later, when... I started university at the University of Cape Town. I was standing in a queue registering for business science, and I see this guy in dreadlocks who looks quite familiar, but I couldn't quite place him. And at some point, I figured out it was Lungisa after all those years. Immediately rekindled our friendship. He studied computer science. I studied information systems. We were in the same faculty. And I guess straight out of university, Lungi founded a mobile voiceover IP startup a little bit ahead of its time, early days of 3G, pre-smartphone, and they were already writing apps. And he learned how to build scalable transaction systems at that point in time. I started my career at Accenture, working in the communications and high-tech practice, where really my passion for telecoms developed. I could see its transformative nature, in particular mobile, and decided that I wanted to focus on the industry and not do anything else. So I went and joined a smaller firm. And that's where I met Carl, our chief business officer, a Lebanese national who was born in, in the UK. And we worked on a couple of projects together, became great friends, and started you know, talking about entrepreneurship. And following 
my time at Delta, I um, joined Rocket Internet, which is a German venture builder for online startups, and got shipped over to Nigeria. It was 2012 before Lagos was cool, and had the pleasure of meeting Bradley, our CFO. We worked together on this this uh, e-tailer in Nigeria called Jumia Now, which has gone public, by the way. And that's basically the connection point of, of how we got together. I think following that time, we all came to Cape Town, were on sabbatical, and having many philosophical discussions around society, what was going on, and trying to come up with something that we could do that would be engaging and that could have the highest impact. John and Paul knew each other and used to write music together. And then they got together with George and then Pete Best. They were mates. And then they got rid of Pete Best. And that caused some ructions. And then they brought in Ringo. And then that formed the Beatles, the band that we know. There's always got to be a central force pulling everybody together. How did that coming together happen? It's quite fascinating. So, you know, when you look at our backgrounds, we all came from middle-class contexts with good exposure and just a bunch of opportunity in front of us and, you know, hardworking parents and a drive from home. And I think it's quite amazing that we all intersected at a moment a bit later in our careers where we could take sabbatical, observe society and think about what we wanted to do. And it's within that that our purpose emerged and very, very simple idea that we just want everyone around us to thrive and to do well. That's all we want, right? We want everyone to share in the prosperity and the sense that like there's plenty and there's abundance and that we don't believe in scarcity, right? We don't, we don't buy into the notion of scarcity. And that's, that's what's bound us. It's actually 10 years since we founded the company. I mean, we launched the company only in 2015, but the founding of the company is now 10 years and we're still together. I think it's highly irregular for four co-founders to be together after 10 years and still have the same conversations and still be engaged and still dream about the next 10 years. Uh, but it's the unifying purpose and the fact that it's remained indelible that's essentially been the glue and the golden thread. What is it that keeps you together? Because a lot of friendships don't last 10 years. A lot of friendships are put under extreme strain when people work together. And then you take four individuals, all of whom you know, who don't know each other, and you put everybody together and you expect that to work. It sounds complicated. Yeah, I think the starting point and what helped us come together is just the common baseline value system. So, you know, we're very different personalities. If you stood around us, you feel like, how the hell did these guys come together? But the baseline value system is there, which is important. And then the second part is the purpose, which I've spoken about. And then the third is that we did the work. So even right at the beginning, we had a coaching session with somebody who unpacked our personalities and unpacked, you know, where our core strengths were and where we could add the most value and how we could come together as a team. And we did the work and we've continued to do the work over the years. We still get coaching. We still sit. We still work two things. And that's been very important. And then the fourth, which now I've never really spoken about outside of one-on-one context, but I think it's super important, is we've always been there for each other. So over time, somebody has a challenge personal that needs to be addressed or this, you know, exhaustion, this energy, there's all sorts of things. We're just human beings. And what's been amazing, what I've observed is no matter what, um, the other three will pick it up without even discussing, right? And we won't miss a beat and we'll just keep going. 
And that's just being sort of real fraternity in that, right? We're, we're there for each other. And then maybe the fifth thing is just the flexibility that we've just allowed life and personal to evolve and have never put constraints on each other on, you know, where we need to be or how we need to show up or any of this type of stuff, but just allowed life to continue. And I, I think that's created quite an enduring uh, situation, which I'm eternally grateful for. Coming up on Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast. What do you say to people who say, don't go into business with friends? I used to speak very definitively about going into business with your friends and how wonderful it is. And I've had an incredible experience with that, right? It's added so much meaning to, to work and what we do, and I'm internally grateful. But then also look at the fact that actually Lungi and I went to university together and we worked on projects. We have worked together. Carl and I, we met at work and we worked together and we became friends. And it's the same with Bradley. We met at work, we worked together, we became friends. So as much as we were friends, there was a work context that got tested prior to starting the business. What defines genius? Brilliant mind? Unsurpassed ambition? Perhaps... Lexus believes it's about something different, authenticity. This lies in the ability to follow that one thing that drives you, that one true part of who you are. That is the root of genius. And that's the authenticity you experience when you're behind the wheel of a Lexus. It's just one way that Lexus makes luxury personal. Book a test drive at your nearest Lexus dealer and experience amazing. And if you want to see how I experienced amazing with the brand new Lexus RX350 recently, click on the link in the podcast blurb. It's a remarkable story of success. There are a couple of partnerships based on values that I know of very well. Robbie and Fernando at Nando's, to this day, the besties of besties, and they've been friends for 40 years and in business together for 35. You add into that their first funder, a man called Dick Enthoven, which we talk about in the first episode of this series. What connected them and bound them was a shared belief system and a shared value system. The founders of First Rand Group of Laurie Dipnard and Paul Harris and G.T. Ferreira, they joke about and say they could never fall out with each other because their wives became best friends and so they were bound together <laughs> forever. But people underestimate the importance of values and often find it hard to identify what those values are that bind them. What do you think it is that binds you as a group or as long as you have with a vision to continue into the future? Yeah, I think what binds us is a shared discomfort um, around just pervasive inequality perpetuated by a scarcity mindset. We want to be the antithesis of that and we want to represent the antithesis of that and that you want to demonstrate that you can build a company that's growing, that's profitable, that's sustainable, but that's still actually giving more back to society than it takes back. That's the underlying principle through which we think about things, which you know sounds a bit radical, but it's not <laughs> when you think about it. When you observe nature and, and you see things that endure over time. So that's what, what drives us. That's what gets us up in the morning every day and we feel a duty, duty-bound towards proving this. That's fine amongst four of you. But over the years, in 2017, you raised your first Series A funding of $4 million. 2018, you raised $16 million. And then a huge amount of money in 2021, you raised 80 
$3 million in your Series C round. Now, these are all different groups of people. These are all the different people with different expectations from different parts of the world with different mindsets, different ways of thinking about the world. They become your shareholders. They become the boss. They start surely beginning to pull at various aspects of what it is that holds you together at the center. Is that true? Um, yes, that is true. I think that is always the case, right? Where you're dealing with human beings and, you know, new faces are starting to come into the room. They're going to challenge, they're going to challenge the core. And I think that's a good thing because that's also your moment to stand up and demonstrate your beliefs. Don't get me wrong. There are moments where we have wavered, right? Or we've uh, misstepped or became risk averse. There's certainly been those moments. And I was just talking about this to somebody in the team. What we've just realized is that every time we just come back to the core and to the essence and to who we are, there's always the answer, right? So it's been remarkable just seeing that over the years that like, you know, a little wavering and then just coming back to the core and then just sort of getting back on track. When you say come back to the core or come back to the sense of purpose, people talk about purpose in organizations all the time. And again, they can't identify the purpose. If your core purpose remains that fundamental belief that you've got this shared discomfort about pervasive inequality and this fundamental belief that you can do something to address it, well, then every answer stems from that, right? Exactly. Exactly. But here's an interesting challenge. You've got your purpose, so why why you exist. You've got your vision, what you're trying to get to, the world you want, right? And for us, we've articulated in the term open commerce. We want commerce to open up for folks. And then you've got strategy. And this is where the, the tension comes in because the strategy may look very different, the vision, in its inception or in the earlier in the middle. And it may just click into place just towards the end. And that's the hardest part is that often in strategy, you have to do counterintuitive things just to, you know, set the foundation for the next thing and for the next thing. And that first thing may not look like the next thing. It may not look like the last thing, but it may be the smartest way to get to your vision. And that's often where we've had challenges, right? Uh, trying to explain something that may not quite make sense to the naked eye. But you know that it's kind of a piece of the puzzle to something much broader. That's the hardest part. A lot of people would say never go into business with friends because you share a mindset, you share a value system. You're not likely to challenge each other. You don't have a maverick thinking in that environment. You need somebody who's going to come from left of field, who's going to push and cajole. Maybe that comes from investors. But what do you say to people who say don't go into business with friends? As I've gotten older... I used to be a lot more black and white <laughs> in my younger days. Uh, right now, I uh, really try to live in the nuance and understand that we're all different and that circumstances are different. So I used to speak very definitively about going into business with your friends and how wonderful it is. And I've had an incredible experience with that, right? It's, it's added so much meaning to, to work and what we do, and I'm internally grateful. But then also look at the fact that actually Lungi and I, went to university together and we worked on projects. So we have worked together. Carl and I, we met at work and we worked together and we became friends. And it's the same with Bradley. We met at work, we worked together, we became friends. So as much as we were friends, there was a work context that got tested prior to starting the business. And I don't ever fully appreciated that until I joined the dots and got, actually, it's the combination that's the magic, not just one or the other. But they'd never worked together. 
yet it still works? Yes. <laughs> wow. That's a good question. I, honestly, I think it's, I saw the inflections in us as a team, as a group, under sort of two circumstances. One, when we really spent the time together outside of work and we had fun and you know, went to a music festival or just had fun and just had joy together, right? Um, it, it created like these bonds that, that, that permeated. And the second was all the investment we've made into coaching and spending time with that coaching and understanding our personalities. The money you've raised, all of it has come from outside of South Africa. The first lot out of the Netherlands, the second lot, I think, out of the United States. Certainly the last one, the big tranche, the $83 million. U.S. money, it's family money, it's venture capital money, it's a complicated tapestry of all kinds of cash coming from all over the place, everybody taking bets perhaps in a thousand different directions at any one year, and these people pulling this money together. It's sad, maybe it's wonderful, but it's also sad that it's not domestic money. Why did you choose to go that route rather than go local? Did you try local and they couldn't give you enough? What was the dynamic? Yeah, we attempted on multiple occasions across all the rounds to raise local money and it just hasn't worked out you could never agree on terms you could never agree on, on the value of the business and in the end um we realized something quite difficult early on in the business and it was sort of during this period of like doing research understanding the context understanding the market and just getting a general sense of how south africa works that there's something we believe that is significant in the economy that has not been explored to its true depth in terms of its impact. And that is the impact of sanctions in the country and how it shapes business culture in, in the country on the one level, and then also how it's shaped uh, regulation. So maybe I'll start with the, the business culture. I think, you know, when you're in sanctions, you, you're closed off from the rest of the world. You become very insular. You have to write. It's out of necessity. You need to get pretty organized. You need to set it a little bit across the, the table from your competitors. You need to align on pricing. You need to align on who's going after which segments, all these things, right? And then also you need to get the government around the table and regulation, right? And what is the role of regulation? It's not to protect consumers, but actually to protect the country and business, right? That becomes a primary orientation. And then you had exchange controls, regulating the flow of money in and out of the country. So I think we underestimate this very simple idea that like, despite a 94 in South Africa opening up, you can't just dismantle this apparatus because you wish it. And two, you can't also dismantle the mindset that's developed over a long period of time coming mainly out of survival. It just doesn't disappear. And I guess what I'm getting to is this severe wealth concentration in South Africa. We're the most unequal country in the world. This is a fact. And then you combine that with the fact that you have these exchange controls, which, you know, regulate the flow of money in and out of the country. So as such, you know, a company like ours that's looking to raise capital can only go to a few places. And often those places are where the wealth is concentrated. And you can now imagine like a bit of a conflict of interest that may arise where whoever's giving you money may actually end up being somebody you're competing with and what are their incentives downstream, right? And it's our humble view that this situation, so the concentration of the, the capital and the regulation around how money comes in and out of the country is basically starving the country of much needed blood to fuel uh, new high growth businesses. 
and the extreme efforts that we had to go through to figure out how to bring money into the country under this very strict exchange control regime that spooks investors. And this is severely harming the new economy and protecting the old. Uh, we had to spend a lot of money, work with a lot of lawyers, and eventually we figured it out. But the reason we went to these extreme lengths to figure this out is that we knew without this line of capital into the business, Yoko could never be what it is today and what it will be in the future. When you have such capital concentration, and imagine that this is where we're going to raise our money from, one way or the other, we will end up competing against that capital, right? It's just one of those things. So it immediately creates a conflict of interest and misalignments. And this is our opinion as to why you just don't see enough big new companies emerging in the country. Over the last two decades, it's what Discovery, it's Capitech, a country with the resources that we have, uh, with the talent that we have, with the opportunities that we have. You know, we should be talking about multiples of these companies. But until we sort out this capital issue and until we truly open up and deal with this legacy, this is not going to happen. And then you have companies like ours that have to do all these convoluted things to open up uh, lines of capital into into the market. Not only opening up lines of capital, but then you've got to choose your domicilium as well. You've got to decide where exactly. you're going to be growing from. You can't grow from South Africa because of the complexity of all those controls that you talk about. So you are, for the purposes of this discussion, sitting for the moment in the Netherlands. You've got a presence in Egypt. You are globalizing out of a different domicilium rather than globalizing out of South Africa. That's tragic. It's a very good point, Bruce. Exactly. Like, we've had to do these things so that we can continue to move forward. And you're right. We would have loved to have been able to do these things exclusively from South Africa. Uh, it would have saved us a lot of time, saved us a lot of lawyer fees. We just want to grow the business, right? We want to reach as many small businesses as fast as possible. And time spent on these things, it's actually not value creating at all. It's the wrong use of our time, but it's actually an imperative in order for us to move forward. And I think I keep dreaming of this time in South Africa. I feel like there's very simple things that need to happen just purely from a policy perspective that can unlock the country and the private market would take care of itself. The Exchange control situation, really allowing money to move in and out freely in line with other countries. It's very important. And would just allow, you know, capital to flow into great ideas, innovation to truly foster and not be dependent on the local capital uh, situation and also just create a sense of competition. And then the same thing applies to talent. You know, countries are, are fighting for talent. They're doing all sorts of things to get the best minds. We have the most beautiful country in the world. And through that, we're attracting Really, tier one folks into the country, mostly coming on holiday, falling in love with the place, but struggling to get work permits and to come participate in the economy. And it's just, it's, I, I just find it incredible. Like, you know, most countries are fighting for talent and we're repelling it. And you need capital and you need talent in order to move forward. It's that simple. And I just feel these two policy decisions would completely unlock South Africa and we would find a way to solve many of our problems. Talk to me about, therefore, the benefit of you setting up a business in Amsterdam, because Amsterdam, the Netherlands, is drawing lots of capital, lots of innovation, lots of smart people, and lots of young people with huge tech skills are relocating to the Netherlands precisely because of the opportunity set that exists there with a different way of thinking about the problem of fixing societies, fixing countries, and creating opportunities. You know, if you look at 
the Netherlands, it's a fascinating country, right? It's always punched above its weight. It's always been a, a trading country. Uh, I think Rotterdam is the second or third largest port in the world. They're the second largest food producer in the world. And everything here is always looked at through the eye of trade. Right? That's, that's the orientation. Uh, I find that amazingly pragmatic. And, you know, the new commodity for the future <laughs> is talent, right? When you think about artificial intelligence and, and the fourth industrial revolution, all these things. And one of the things that we really struggled with at home was, you know, we, we wanted to hire folks from across the continent to come join the team to help diversify the team and really represent uh, where we live. And just trying to get a work permit was borderline impossible. It was months, steps, uncertainty. And a business like ours lives and dies by talent and who we're able to attract to solve highly complex problems. And in the end, in the context of the Netherlands, we could sponsor visas for people, for folks from anywhere around the world, including the continent, uh, with a few simple clicks from our desktop. And, you know, within two weeks, visa done and we could hire somebody. So, you know, this is the context. And then sort of directly related to what we do, the Netherlands has really some amazing global payment companies. Payments is a very niche space when it comes to talent, and it's truly a, a center of excellence here. And as we were thinking about our payments R&D and building on our infrastructure and our platform, it made sense for us to centralize that from the Netherlands so that we could become more efficient in terms of how we enter new markets on the continent and better serve our customers. Does the strategy remain Africa, Middle East? But is the yes. goal bigger than that? I think the goal is all about small business that's needing to participate, needing to digitize, needing to enter the formal economy. And we start in our backyard. We, we look at the Middle East and then we will continue um, on this journey wherever it may take us across the world. That's a nice cop-out. Uh, what's the plan? <laughs> Well, we plan to open up a new market per year, every year for the next couple of years, right? So we've kind of got a marker through to 2025, where as a business, we set an internal goal of being IP already, as in we're operating at a scale, scope, size, and maturity, where if it made sense to list, it was a viable option. So this is what we're working towards internally, getting ready for that point. Obviously, we need to assess the market conditions. You know, there's a big global correction happening right now. If it's a year like this, definitely not. But <laughs> but hopefully uh, by then, we're back on the upward swing in terms of the cycle. The company has raised $100 million so far from global funders, all of whom see the opportunity set for part of the world regarded by many as the future. That's Africa, just in case you're wondering. They've outlasted the lifespan of most boy bands. Few startup teams make it past five years. These guys have been going for ten so far. Perhaps, just perhaps, they're doing something right. Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast is proudly brought to you by Lexus. Now available for download on your favorite podcast app. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Another will drop in a week's time. Remember, you can see me experience amazing in the brand new Lexus RX350 by clicking on the link in the blurb of this episode. Go on. You know you want to.